Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Wesker demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up, and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother, Wesley. Today we're talking a movie from 1997, The Edge. The Revenant Light. <laughs> Jaws with Claws. All right, quick questions. Okay. Anthony Hopkins, was he ever young? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, he was, but not really on our radar. I mean, Silence of the Lambs, he was already graying, and that was 1991, I think, is when it won one Best Picture. Now we're talking a quarter century earlier when he was an action star. Yeah, quite a lot of action in The Edge. All right, second question. Alec Baldwin, does he ever get old? Oh, yes, he definitely gets older. Remember we talked about how ineffectual he was at fighting Henry Cavill in the Mission Impossible movies a few years ago? (laughs) Right, right, how they go head-to-head. Toe-to-toe? I mean, he's not even that good at fighting Anthony Hopkins in this movie. Uh, Nor the bear. Anthony Hopkins takes care of that. Yeah. They both get, you know, like thrown into the water, but Charles gets up and finishes the job, whereas Alec Baldwin would have gone all grizzly man. Speaking of the bear, fifth build cast member Bart the bear. And rightly so. Bart the bear is the bear. That would be the man, but he's a bear. (laughs) What other movies has he been in? I mean, he was in The Bear. (laughs) (laughs) The eponymous The Bear. Right, but not even his first Anthony Hopkins movie. Bart the Bear was the bear in Legends of the Fall, although they didn't actually share scenes together, he and the bear. Okay, so (laughs) can you connect Bart the Bear to Kevin Bacon? (laughs) Absolutely, and easily so. Let's see, Bart the Bear with Brad Pitt Legends of the Fall, Brad Pitt, Kevin Bacon in Sleepers. Wow. Two degrees of Bart the Bear. Yep. Okay. The Edge. How do you distinguish it from River Wild? <laughs> a completely different movie. The only, the only, well, that's also a Kevin Bacon movie, but completely different. The only similarity is that there's a river in both, kind of a river. So basically you're saying they don't compare. River Wild does have some uh, betrayal and guns and junk, spoiler, but that's really No, it is. It's man versus nature as far as conflict goes, and also man versus man. Can you imagine John C. Riley as a bad guy? I can imagine him as a sad clown. (laughs) 
<laughs> he played Mr. Cellophane yeah, in Chicago. Exactly. But uh, this is definitely man versus nature as well as man versus, and even kind of man versus himself. Yeah, very deep. All right, last question. Go. Name another Morse billionaire. Mr. Morse. That sounds awfully familiar. It sounds like a Christopher Nolan thing or something. Uh, David Morse and James Morse. I don't know. David Morse, the shipping magnate in Pretty Woman. Oh, man. I wouldn't have got David. Okay. I got a lot of David, and I might have been able to come up with that, but Morse I didn't remember. Only seven years later, The Edge ripped off Pretty Woman, apparently. Yeah, well, The Edge was just like, what? We need a, like a rich-sounding name. How about Morse? One would think Pretty Woman would be more your speed, except maybe not. Does So now I have questions for you. Does okay. The Edge count as a dude bro's broing down movie? Hmm. Because that's your kind of movie when one would think it would have been Pretty Woman because you made the David Morse Association. No. I mean, I get what you're saying because the Bob character loves to give the Charles Morse character a lot of shit. He likes to needle him and play pranks on him. And it's a dude bro movie without all the fun. (laughs) And a lot more like survival. Right. Only drinking like river water. They don't drink or eat anything like they roast a chunk of bear meat over fire and otherwise have no what other movie was i criticizing for the lack of bodily function oh you're talking about a quiet place too yeah yeah they don't eat or drink anything i don't know how they they manage also their beards there's a little bit of uh, beard continuity issue too and they should have gotten skinnier uh maybe i'm not sure how long they were out there but by the time things got dire they were just starting to show some stubble they were out there for a while but it wasn't like months and months although it turned from cold to very cold to like winter flurries cold right but going back to bob as opposed to charles the alec baldwin character He obviously turned out to be not so great. You know, he was a little bit rounded. He wasn't just an outright murderer. But was Bob a bad guy? Was he set up as such? Were we supposed to like the Alec Baldwin character before we knew what he was, what he had set out to do? No, he was always kind of smarmy and Hollywoody, like Hollywoody in the worst sense. Because he's a photographer, a hot shit photographer. But I read that he said Charles's name like 87 times in the movie. (laughs) And I've noted how curiously movie-ish his speech patterns are. He's really redundant and it's super annoying. Where he's like, Charles, why would I want to do that? Charles, why would I think about murdering you? Charles, why would I do that? And he he keeps talking in that circular way that makes me want to throttle him. And I wonder if that was intentional, if he was smarmy in that sense i mean alec baldwin i think plays a good bad guy or a yelling guy he did it in the departed as the police chief guy or the task force guy he did it in glengarry glen ross but he seemed thoroughly like scriptedly unlikable he's not the dude you want to be lost in the woods with and they both are kind of all over charles like charles what are we gonna do charles what's the plan i thought that anthony hopkins i mean he obviously displays a decent amount of resilience in this film but he doesn't say what I'm supposed to have a plan until like two-thirds through the movie I guess he maybe he liked having a plan at first and it was it was always kind of sport to him being put to the test like this maybe that was more of a function of Charles's position in the group but it seemed like 
a very natural choice for the Alec Baldwin character. I mean, Charles was the oldest, and I guess you would defer to him for being the most experienced, but he wasn't rugged. We never actually found out what he did for money, what made him a billionaire, although we established him as a billionaire several times because they kept mentioning it. But in that way, it seemed like their roles were sort of microcosms, uh, microcosmic examples of their social standing in life. Right. I mean, like money in civilization that gives you that standing. It seems like in the wild, he was obviously the most learned and his wits the most helpful to them. It's like his wits are the only currency in the wild. And he was rich in that way where they were, you know, beholden to him for work and however, you know, whatever Stephen's job was and Bob's. But uh, when things got rough in the wild, then they also defer to him, even if he has to snap them in line. That's interesting. They establish Harold, the Stephen character, as being kind of incompetent from the start. Like, he's like, the actor's sick. And he's like, you can't get the actor. You can't take care of anything. (laughs) And banana peels, shine shoes. You should know that. (laughs) Right, exactly. He's like, he's already disabused, Harold. And so he's definitely not positioned to step up once they get into the wild. Plus, you know, he's expendable going in, right? That's, I mean, sadly, yes. There's the old, you know, trope, the the black guy dies first. And you would think he would try to avoid that. I like Harold Perrineau. He's been in a bunch of movies. Oh, he was great and lost. Yeah, and, and he was in uh, the Matrix sequels and things, and he's been around for a long time. He's great. It was just, it was more the 90s movie context where I was like, come on, seriously? This is so cliche. Exactly. But there's only three of them, ultimately, when they get out in the wild. What are you going to do? Because the pilot never even made it out of the plane. They didn't even try. Well, he was clearly Dunzo. Yeah. And in early telling character moment with Bob, he gets out of the plane and he goes for it. He saves himself, whereas Charles's character consistently is looking out for his fellow man. I mean, Charles is, I think, if anything, we can extrapolate from his composure, comportment in the woods, is that he was probably self-made. Probably not like a dilettante rich kid. Yeah, Charles knows everything. Ask him. Obviously a smart guy and, you know, maybe wiser because he's older. But I I figure you can make, there can be a lot of dumb millionaires, right? You can get lucky. You can, like you said, inherit money or, or find your way into wealth, but not billionaires. I'm pretty sure there are relatively few dumb billionaires, right? He probably has some wherewithal, and that applies to all areas of his life. It seemed like he was an all-around smart guy in a way that not everybody can apply their book learning to their morals and principles. The point is that Charles is a smart guy and that smarts, although he says he has no imagination, the direct application of his learning was evident, even if it doesn't directly apply to their current situation, rather helping Stephen with a stitch in his side or calming Bob the hell down when they missed the helicopter. And he's like, fire from ice, tell me how. And he's like sobbing and snotting in the grass. (laughs) Right. Even though they're not in an immediate need to turn ice into fire he's using it to distract him from his basically from falling into complete and utter despair and it requires that intelligence it's not to say that bob wasn't intelligent but yeah his instinct was to save himself and charles's instinct was to check on the pilot and not only that but quick thinking he pulls out his knife and cuts steven loose from the seatbelt, where he certainly would have died he only lasted another what 30 minutes in the movie tops but still he understood what was happening But the knife is interesting. The knife is central. And isn't it curious that Bob would give Charles a knife? 
in the middle of their 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 expedition. First off, when do you think the plot to kill him was formulated? Probably immediately before or immediately after Charles agreed to join them for the photo shoot. But I call into question the basis for whatever argument you're building right now because I don't think that Bob actually got Charles that knife. Well, he handed it to him. Well, I mean, ostensibly it was Bob's birthday gift to Charles, but Mickey bought the knife, the pocket watch, and the watch. Fair enough. So if that were the case, obviously Bob wouldn't want to hand him. They didn't know they were going to go down in the plane. You know, they couldn't have anticipated the bird strike, although we anticipated the bird strike because it was very neatly set up right before they set out. But obviously Bob wouldn't want to hand him a survival weapon if he was going to then attempt to kill him in the woods. Also, Charles asked his wife, asked Mickey, you know, she said, you're always reading something. And he says, yeah, it's a book on survival. My assistant gave it to me. Do you know why? And she Mm. said, boy, that creeped me out with all that talk about bear. And it was like she was avoiding the question, why do you think the assistant conveniently gave him a book of survival tips? Interesting. Doesn't she, she comes back around to it, doesn't she? No, they have the bear discussion and she's like, ooh, I was creeped out by bears. Hey, go get me a sandwich. For the purposes of the screenplay and the movie, I wouldn't say that the edge is chock full of surprises or twists. Almost everything that they experience is set up in one way or another. And yes, they're going to need a knife, a pocket knife. Would a billionaire carry a pocket knife? Probably not. But uh, he is the one who's going to need it to cut Stephen free of the plane. Does he supplement his knowledge directly? Was he, did he make his billions off of sporting goods or camping supplies? Or did he just ingest that information on survival from the book that he was conveniently given at the top? So other than it being set up in such a pedestrian way to allow for, it's a survival movie. And we got a set up that he knows survival anyway. Somehow he didn't glean it from, you know, years of business manuals or something. But for the story purposes... I wondered, isn't it curious that Bob gives him a knife? Why does his assistant give him that book? You know, they set up the bear so thoroughly and the weather and everything. And was it because we're supposed to probe on second viewing when the plot came about? Or Or how many people were in on it? Right. And if Mickey was, in fact, in on it because Bob swears on his life that she wasn't. But we can't exactly take his word on it. But he really didn't have anything to lose. And I guess if Charles was going to go back or not go back, Bob volunteered that she didn't have anything to do with it because he pretty much knew he was gone, a dunzo, and yet Charles might return to his life, to his wife. A moment of redemption for Bob, regardless of his motivation. If if Mickey indeed was not in on it, he's trying to absolve her of any of any involvement. But even if she was, that can still function as Bob's absolution or redemption because either way he's absolving her of any involvement, right? So like, I didn't really question whether or not he was reliable in that moment until now. And that depth of character is pretty characteristic, I think, of David Mamet. This is a David Mamet script. Although Alec Baldwin has criticized Lee Tamahori, the director, for making this much more about a survival action movie and ignoring some of the deeper character elements. And I do think they were present, but I wonder if I'm assigning a little bit too much credit to the screenplay and the filmmaker in the way that 
we were supposed to think and have deeper questions about the motivations of the characters when maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just straightforward setup. We need to establish a knife. We need to establish the book. And everything else is convenience after the fact. Well, see, because he knows how to make the compass from the book he just read. It's definitely a tight little script, and I'm thinking that, that it succeeds in the sense that these story points that could be perceived as really convenient work because they seem so plausible. Regardless of its content, it's very plausible that the assistant would get the boss this kind of curio antique survival guidebook. It's like tantamount to giving him a, um, like an antique almanac or something like that. Like, isn't this cool? Like, what do you give a man who has everything? The knife, because of how it's so utilized throughout the story, you can't think of the edge without it. It saves Stephen's life. For a, for a while. Know. It actually ends Stephen's life, technically. Oh, because he... <laughs> We don't know how, but he somehow gashes his entire leg open. Grievously. And then there's the spear, you know, countless applications, right, for that knife. That's why they call it the edge, I bet. So it's it's just so integrated that I would never question Bob's choice. But I do think it's important to note that that slip reveals that, you know, that it wasn't really even Bob's gift. It does make sense that his assistant would give him a book on the wild and someone else would give his wife would give him the knife being that Mr. Morse, the billionaire, is going along on this photo shoot to the remotes of the remote wild of Alaska or it was filmed in Canada, but it felt very Alaska to me. And maybe it wasn't all planned out because you wouldn't give Charles those gifts if you were going to then murder him. But how do you explain Bob? After being told directly and handed bloody rags, how do you explain Bob hanging them over the branch? He was baiting the bear. Was he baiting the bear to come and murder Stephen and potentially Charles? (laughs) This is what I'm trying to figure out because I don't think this movie is dumb. I think it is in fact very smart, but maybe something happened in the edit where there were cerebral elements removed for the sake of, look, that bear sequence with the spears is really long. Can we cut out some of this boring talk in favor of that stuff? It doesn't make any sense where he was like, no, I'm not going to bury it. I'm going to hang it in the wind. I don't know how how well the smell travels (laughs) in the rain, but he totally hung it up as like a flag for the bear. The simplest answer is the most likely He said bury it, right? Yes. And so even if he was just like not following the instruction, he wouldn't have hung it on a branch, like on display. Like the simplest answer is that he intended to draw out the bear. But that again begs the question, like why? Because that obviously imposes incredible risk for Bob. It's not like Bob was Bart's buddy. (laughs) I mean, he does freeze up a little bit when Stephen dies, which is horrible. And I don't think that Bob intended for Stephen to die necessarily, despite what you're saying about possibly drawing out the bear deliberately. But then when they run and Charles has the foresight to surround themselves with the fire because the bear is hunting them. Yeah. Bob totally freezes up and he's like, Bob, help me. Like, come on, create the fire circle. And and then he starts grabbing logs and tossing them. So it seems like his self-preservation wasn't infallible. I think he was telling the truth when he said, why would I want to kill you, Charles? Why would I want to do that? I, and plus, I need you to, to get out of here. I need your help getting out of here, you fucking idiot. In the best of circumstances, if Stephen died and then the bear killed Charles or Bob killed Charles, how would he have gotten out of there? Everything was Charles. The squirrel was Charles, even though they didn't get to eat it because the bear came chasing after them. No, it was they left their dinner 
to chase the helicopter. Oh, right. The Edge, a thoroughly entertaining adventure, but like The Bodyguard and other 90s movies, it feels like it lacks a certain amount of seriousness. 90s movies were like the end of the era where audience members go, yeah. <laughs> like, why did they do this? Or why didn't this happen? And then you say, it's totally fine and acceptable to say, it's just a movie. I mean, I can't help but feel that way, yes, just because of how convenient everything is. It seems like the gimmick of this movie is all the useless knowledge. And wouldn't it be, you know, I love trivia. Wouldn't it be amazing if some old dude actually got stuck out in the wild and had to put all his book knowledge to the test? That seems like the gimmick that this movie became. And it could be slight, except that I feel like David Mamet is above that and has certainly demonstrated that in some of his other scripts, but it maybe got dumbed down. And yet there's the subtle commentary about classism, maybe. If you wanted to read into that, absolutely. But the counter-classism argument for this is another 1997 movie that you might recall, Titanic, where all of the rich people are completely helpless and running around, like, expecting other people to solve their problems. Yep. I guess the difference being that there was no one... Who could help them? I mean, Charles would have happily checked out of the situation to have some roughneck in a helicopter haul him aboard and solve his problem for him. He wasn't looking for a life-changing experience. It maybe just came about by way of accident, and he ultimately appreciated that. It could be a pretty cryptic closing line. My friends, they died saving my life. You know, when everything that we saw was anything but. But it was more of a, meta- a metaphor for what they did for him? Yeah. The things that they went through together encouraged him to fight so that he didn't die of shame in the woods. And ultimately the test of fortitude, the validation of his life when Bob accused him of only saving him because he didn't have a buddy and how pathetic that was and how everybody's chasing him. Which he didn't deny. No, he didn't. But he also found some renewed purpose where civilization and the money maybe wasn't the only thing that he found value in ultimately. And when he did return, he was the one who was going to start his life over. And so maybe this was a galvanizing moment for him, a moment of clarity. You know, that people die of shame also seems very plausible. But do you think that's really true? I wouldn't say shame as much as despair. You know, if I had to get naked in the woods to start a fire using my underwear or something and then people showed up, I wouldn't not want to be rescued. Like I would I I think that I would go 127 hours spoiler and cut my arm off just for the chance to get out of there. I would have no shame. I would feel despair because I would be exhausted and tired, especially if all my efforts went to waste. If I traipsed over the mountain to arrive back at my campsite. I might be filled with a little bit of hopelessness. Hopelessness rings very true to me. And this movie appeals to me in a very, I like trivia. You know, I'll like store a bunch of useless information. And you're like, what would you do with all that information if we didn't talk about it in the podcast? So I very much get that. I regret that I don't have the other component of Charles and that he's a billionaire. But I like this idea where they take the clever stuff that you read online and you're like, oh, that would be useful if I ever got lost in the woods. And they actually used some of it. And it wasn't like everything magically saved them. The compass, in fact, threw them off and hurt them more than it helped them. But ultimately, it was fortitude and cunning that saved their lives, his life anyway, and a beautiful setting and a fun action movie where I think Bart maybe should have gotten fourth billing. Who was billed above Bart? Because Bart is awesome. 
Elle McPherson. Okay, I guess. So Brian did end up watching this with me, kind of, you know, did one of those things where he's like, I got a lot to do, and then he kind of meanders <laughs> over and then gets stuck and can't get up. Had he seen it? He had, but not for many, many years, probably since 1997. But we definitely played the bear game where you're like, real bear, fake bear. Definitely yep. real. Like, probably real bear, like, 90% of the time. He is so great, though, right? To do the growly thing and the flat ears and the howling and the rearing. All that was real bear. The swipey paw. Yeah. How do they like, okay, Bart, today we're going to train you how to bounce the log in case you need to send someone into the river. I was like, that's the, that was one of the moments where I was like, man in a suit. <laughs> When he's bouncing the log. I'm pretty sure that there was prosthetic bear head that they can lunge into frame and swipey bear arms for sure to knock them into the river. So not only were there bear, there was a bear effects team, a prosthetics team, but there was also an animatronic bear team. A lot of bear stuff happening in this movie. And as convincing as all that was, without the stellar performance of an actual freaking bear, this movie wouldn't, I don't think, have been what it was. I mean, they really get inside the bear mouth and the bear eyes where you're like, you just can't fake that. You know, if nothing else, for however much they might have butchered the intention of David Mamet's script, some this maybe this dude was chosen, Lee Tomahori, the director, who didn't do a lot of stuff. He directed one of the Bond films. He directed one of the Triple X sequels or something. But maybe they're like, you know who knows how to direct bears is Lee Tomahori. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely not to be disregarded in, in The Edge. I mean, there's probably a handful of directors who'd be like, a bear? No. <laughs> Right. And they have trouble with dogs. They had to animate the dogs in Cruella. Nobody yeah, can, that's, that's what, it, what I'm saying. Nobody can match Bart. And it was sad. We lost him in 2000. But there have, you know, the dude, his trainer is still going. And there have been many successive Barts. Because maybe, maybe this Bart bear, the first one, maybe he was like the Dakota Fanning of bears. What does that mean? Like unnaturally talented. <laughs> Bart's legit, dude. And he's like lumbering away and all of his bear muscles are rippling. And Yeah, the bear butt shot. There's Yeah, there's lots of bear butt and there's also lots of bear eyes. Great bear performances. <laughs> so that, those are the poster quotes. Either great bear performances or Bart's legit, yo. <laughs> I do. I am tending towards the quotes that are more like, uh, you know, not so random or off topic and a little bit more applicable to the film itself. So that's a good one. That is yeah, one. neither of those are at all off topic for this movie. He has to feature prominently on the cover art because they're fighting him as opposed to fighting themselves. So when we sat down to watch this movie, I was definitely questioning the motivation. Like Brian's like, why are you watching this? And I was like, I don't know. Wes said that you wanted to review it. But you basically answered my question that you really do every now and then think about this totally random movie and want to sit down and watch it. Yeah. Like, And do you think there are other people like you? Yes. I don't know how many people know about this movie. I'm not sure how well it did, but it probably wasn't the prestige piece. That it wasn't the Dances with Wolves of the late 90s or anything. I like this movie. I figured you would like this movie. Dad would like it. Because of the sausage fest nature of it, I wasn't sure how receptive Kelly would be. But then I noted that every existing remaining movie that I have every intention of sitting her down and more or less forcing her to watch are kind of dude-centric. It's just movies that I you know, grew up with. The other ones she would have seen already. I mean, just like a very tightly controlled film, tightly written script, human drama playing out on a wild stage. And like you said, there's all these different levels of man versus nature and man versus man and man versus himself 
which I think adds an appropriate level of complexity to an otherwise pretty simple, straightforward, thrilling action film, adventure film. Do you think, therefore, that The Edge hits the right tone? We can forgive some 90s convention and some racial indiscretion. Maybe it wasn't quite as action-packed for some people, and maybe it wasn't quite as cerebral for other people. I like this movie, but I think to use your The Bodyguard analogy, there's a reason why I haven't thought about The Edge since 1997. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I I do like this movie. I think it's a good movie, and that's my official rating. But it doesn't feel like a totally movie to me. And if if that's where you're going with this, I'm going to need some more justification. It is tight, but it's so tight that it... It doesn't breathe maybe where it needs to. This could have been the three-hour Dances with Wolves epic, where it could have been more cerebral, more introspective, contemplative, but it wasn't. It just hit a note, especially for me, at the ripe age of 20, 21, when I first saw this movie. Maybe just falling short of greatness, but kind of popcorn movies, and I love you know, nature movies in particular. We talked about The Last of the Mohicans and the setting of The Edge very much appeals to me. And I love bears. And at the time I was enamored with Anthony Hopkins. You have a pocket knife. Yes. And I carry it with me all the time when I can find it. But that's also because we got mugged and almost got mugged in New York. You mean in the alleyway with Mickey and Elaine? Yep. And the logic there is that if I carry a knife, if someone mugged me, I would be able to do something about it. If I were put to the test, if I were brought to the edge, I'm pretty sure I could survive by stabbing someone. If you got jumped in the alley, you'd stick somebody. It's nice to think that I would. It's nice to think that I'm pretty sure that if I were in the wild and and my life depended on it, I could pull from the mistakes that uh, Alexander Supertramp made in and Into the Wild, I could refer to The Edge and any number of survival-type movies, and I'm pretty sure I can get out of there. Yeah, the closest I can get to shame is self-pity. Like, I could see self-pity taking you down. Not you specifically, but like a person out in the wild feeling bad for themselves. Yep. You know, the hopelessness could maybe end there. I mean, I would definitely like to believe that in a life-or-death situation, I'd like to think of myself as a person of action. But now I'm to the age where I haven't had to do that stuff. And uh, so I'm like a billionaire in calories. Would you have eaten Steven? (laughs) Yes, I would. If it really came down to that. But I also would have left him out for all the other animals. So I have some plausible deniability. I wouldn't want people to know that I had eaten Steven if I was coming back. Especially if I were a, a person of, you know, of stature. If I were a billionaire. Like, you can't be like, did you eat your assistant after he died? Like, you didn't kill him so you could eat him, right? And on that note, and all right? I like this movie. This is a strangely fun popcorn movie that The Revenant couldn't aspire to be. And part of me worried that Kelly would regard this as Death's slog through the snow, the prequel. <laughs> or I guess historically, far later, the sequel. But still, it feels fun and full of bears. Official all right movie. And there you have it. And all right from Wes A. Good from Iris. That's our review on The Edge, available on VOD. I'd like to know who thinks to watch The Edge. Like, who has their annual The Edge movie night? Who (laughs) thinks that The Edge is the absolute best movie ever? Do you know, I just read something like that. I just read, oh God, now I got to find out who it was. Someone said it. Uh, hang on, hang on. There it is. Jenna Fisher. 
of The Office has cited this as one of her favorite movies and that she makes an effort to watch it every year. You know what I'm going to do today? What are you going to do now that you have a day off? I'm going to go watch The Edge. 818-835-0473. That's our hotline. Or whatever movies at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and bearing with us for yet another super random review. Oh. Bear with me. (laughs) (laughs) On our discussion on The Edge. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with ElectroCast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of ElectroCast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join ElectroCast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to ElectroCast.com and join our community today. ElectroCast. Transform your influence. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.